This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 131 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a phenomenal young filmmaker who, at just 32, already has directed two films that have been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, 2014's Whiplash and 2016's La La Land, who personally received a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar nom for the former and Best Director and Best Original Screenplay Oscar noms for the latter, and who, a week from today, widely is expected to shatter a record that has held for 85 years by becoming the youngest person ever to win Best Director at the Academy Awards. La La Land is an extremely rare original movie musical, which Chazelle made for $30 million over 42 days after three months of rehearsal with stars Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and it has resonated with almost everyone who has seen it. From film critics who propelled it to a 93% favorable rating on RottenTomatoes.com, to moviegoers around the world who have bought $340 million worth of tickets to see it, to Academy members who have recognized it with a record-tying 14 Oscar nominations. In addition to the aforementioned two pending Oscar nominations, Chazelle has received plenty of other personal recognition for his work on the film as well. He won Best Director and Best Screenplay Golden Globe and Critics' Choice Awards and Best Director BAFTA and Directors Guild Awards. He also was nominated for the Best Original Screenplay BAFTA Award and Best Original Screenplay Writers Guild Award. Over the course of a wide-ranging conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Chazelle and I discussed the roots of his tremendous passion for and knowledge about music and movies, which dates back to his early childhood and has inspired everything he's done since. How, as an undergraduate student at Harvard, he hit it off with Justin Hurwitz, a classmate who became his best friend and the composer on Chazelle's senior thesis film-turned-feature directorial debut, 2009's Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, as well as on Whiplash and La La Land. How Guy and Madeline, a $60,000 musical drama shot on black-and-white 16mm film, was sort of a test run for the larger-scale L.A.-set movie musical that Chazelle long dreamed of making, but that was turned down by everyone in Hollywood for years, how, in the meantime, he instead wound up making Whiplash, first as a short, then as a feature, both of which won major awards at Sundance and helped pave the way for La La Land to finally get a green light, and why he thinks La La Land, against all odds, finally got made and then resonated to the extent that it has. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
All right, Damien, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it, especially at a very hectic time in your life, I'm sure. We always begin by asking, where were you born and raised, and what did or do your folks do for a living? I was born in Providence, Rhode Island, mainly raised in New Jersey, though a little bit in France. We sort of went back and forth. My dad's French, my mom's American. They're both professors. Mm -hmm. My dad's a computer scientist, and my mom's a medieval historian. We always kind of bring up the, the early interests and stuff, but for you, it really, several of them became the subjects of your of your films. So if we can just get to the origins of it, I guess to begin with, what's at the root of your of your interest in and, and love for music generally and jazz specifically? Well, you know, I, I think jazz really came initially from my family, from my, from my dad and from my uncle, who was also living and had kind of moved from France to live in America for a little bit. And I always kind of felt like I, I, that in both of their cases, part of the reason they moved to America was how much they loved American music. Mm. And so I was growing up with just a lot of jazz, blues, rock and roll in the household, and, and, and especially jazz, and just kind of learning the stories about you know, the, the, these figures who seemed so larger than life and kind of mythic, like Charlie Parker and Dexter Gordon and Louis Armstrong and people like that. So I, I think before I even had any interest in listening to jazz, jazz as an idea was just a big mm-hmm. part of my life. And then the other thing that happened to be the case was in New Jersey, where I was going to school at the time, the the public school system just had a really good music program. It was a very kind of top-notch, especially jazz program. And so I kind of got into that and I was drumming. That was my instrument. And that kind of became my life for a bit. So that's where that's where jazz specifically kind of came. Movies were more my own thing. That wasn't really an interest in the family beforehand. From what I understand, the way that really became a passion was comes back to France, right? There's sort of a experience or a period that you, you went on a trip there and just fell in love with, with film history? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, movies, I was obsessed with movies well before then, just, just as, you know, I can't even really, really remember how it started. I was just more obsessed with movies than, than most people. I think somewhat to my parents' chagrin, who would try to kind of use this movie passion to get me to do other things. Like, they would sort of, I remember for a while, my mom set up a kind of quota where I had to read a certain number of books before I could watch a movie in order to get me to read because <laughs> the, the idea of watching a mo- movie was such a tantalizing thing. Right. So that got me to kind of race through books and develop methods of skimming and kind of <laughs> diagonal reading and things right. like that <laughs> so I could get to the movie quickly. So stuff like that. I mean, I think most of the movies I was most interested in at that point were the movies that were kind of coming out mm-hmm. then. You know, they were the movies that were, I loved going to the movie theater. And I loved thrillers and, you know, action and James Bond and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I just kind of lived for that stuff. And when I was even younger than that, I'd loved all the Disney movies that mm-hmm. were coming out at the time. But then we moved to France for a little bit and lived in Paris. And that was my first time living in a big city and certainly my first time having that level of culture at my fingertips. This is like high school? A little before, like middle school. Uh-huh. And so I got into the habit of, you know, every, every week, every Wednesday in Paris, they release this little periodical called Periscope that is just kind of a little cultural guide of everything that's going on in the city that week. And all the movies open on Wednesday. So it's basically the... It's it's the you know it's a Wednesday to Wednesday kind mm-hmm. of schedule and a bunch of it is devoted to movies and so you can kind of look and you see all the current movies they're playing but what was even more interesting was you see all the retrospectives that were playing they have a whole section on repertory kind of programming so that kind of became my guide because you just you can get around 
Paris when you you know even when you're, when you're young you don't need to drive so I would just kind of take the metro and just go from theater to theater and try to cram in four or five movies a day wow. whenever I could you know when, when I wasn't in school and that actually became sort of a film school and in experience. fact uh, up until that period you had not had much interest in musicals right yeah, no, musicals were not, other than, unless you consider the Disney yeah, movies, yeah. you know, musicals, that was a later, a later taste. And a French contribution in a, in a way, because a lot of these were Jacques Demy, right? Yeah, I think the, the, some of the first musicals that I really kind of became smitten by were, were the Jacques Demy musicals, and also some of the kind of semi-musicals of the French New Wave, mm-hmm. things like Shoot the Piano Player, or A Woman is a Woman, or Pierre Le Fou, you know, mm-hmm. things that were kind of, not musicals, but kind of or band apart, you know, band of outsiders yeah. that would sort of uh, segue into musical numbers, you know, and 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 that helped me kind of understand where things like the twist dance in Pulp Fiction came from, mm-hmm. and you know, all these things. So I started to kind of connect the dots a little bit and get more and more interested in in either musicals or movies that would sort of digress to include music. So by the time you went off to college at Harvard, were you already convinced in your own mind that your future was in filmmaking? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I was convinced I, 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 you know, would be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a filmmaker again since I can remember, really? since I was four or wow. five. Or, I mean, you know, before I even really knew what a filmmaker was, <laughs> it was just kind of looking at a screen, going, "I want to do that." Yeah. And I think it was a little bit of a question of whether to go to film school, you know, more vocational film school, or whether to go to get a more generalized undergraduate education. I wound up going the latter route, and I actually didn't know Harvard had a film program when I went there. I think I thought I would do sort of creative writing mm-hmm. and, and literature and just sort of try to try to hone my writing yeah. skills, you know, if I could. But then it turned out that it did have this sort of wonderful little hidden film program that was kind of a subset of a bigger uh, visual arts department, and I wound up sort of, yeah, majoring in that, and that became my, my experience. Yeah, and... Another important thing that I think you took away from Harvard was a friendship with Justin Hurwitz mm-hmm. that started as a freshman and, and went from there. Can you share who he is, how you guys first crossed paths, and, and just how that evolved at Harvard? Yeah, he's an odd fellow. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> I, I first met him very early on freshman year because he was putting together a rock band. And so my first experience with Justin was getting a phone call, cold call from him saying, hey, I'm Justin. I am I heard you play drums. I wondered if you'd be interested in playing in a band. <laughs> and I said, sure. And so I met him in person for the first time at this kind of, you know, preliminary band rehearsal where we were still kind of figuring out who was playing what. Mm-hmm. And there were two people up for the drum spot, me and, and this other guy, D.A. Wallach. And so we both kind of auditioned on drums. Who's making these calls? This is Justin's band? I think at this point it's pretty much Justin yeah. making the calls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was lu- I was lucky enough to earn Justin's approval. DA, you know, as often happens for people who don't get the drumming spot, DA became the band singer <laughs> and, and frontman. And actually, ironically, DA and this other member of the band, Max Drummy, who who is the guitarist in the band, they wound up actually sort of banding together and outlasting the rest of us <laughs> musically and going off to get a record contract and move to LA and and play music professionally. Whereas Justin and me, we, you know, we were in the band for a little bit, but I think pretty early on, we also realized we shared this love of movies. Right. And he was just starting to get into the idea of film scoring at that time. So we roomed together the next year and we, yeah, we really became very close and, and eventually, you know, junior year started working on 
on this this uh, you know our first movie together. So post Chester French, which I guess was the name that of the, the band, band yeah. you as you say you you roomed with Justin sophomore year, and he recently gave I guess an interview to the Harvard Gazette, and his quote was. Damien and I really bonded over this shared philosophy sophomore year of working really hard and sacrificing. I remember we would really egg each other on and make each other feel guilty for not working hard enough. And we just had a lot of conversations about how we both wanted to be really, really good at what we do and what it would take, close quote. So talk we, about that. We had we had the, the, the benefit of not being the most socially adept people. <laughs> so the way to kind of justify that mm-hmm. in our minds or make it seem like not a defect right. was to put it on the back burner and just prioritize work, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, I didn't do a lot of at least after freshman year, I didn't do a lot of going out mm-hmm. in college. I didn't have, you know, the sort of rowdy college experience. Uh, I spent most nights just writing scripts in the mm-hmm. room or, or watching movies or reading film books or working on my own student films. Which, and I think a lot of that was, yeah, was 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 Justin's influence. prodding. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I want to ask you, because you two, I guess, first collaborated on Guy and Madeline on a park bench, which ended up. I guess originally was your senior thesis and then became your first, your feature directorial debut. How did you two decide to tackle this, which ended up as a, a $60,000 film, I think, shot on black and white, 16 millimeter, about a young couple in Boston, the guy, like the protagonist of your other films, a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, again, wind up with other people and wonder if they should be together, which, which is, there just seemed to be some seeds of what we would later see in La La Land. But for this one, it was a marathon to just get it made, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of evolved as it went because it started off as something that was going to be, you know, more like your average senior thesis student film, like like a, you know, a short film. And I asked, you know, before I even started writing the script, I asked Justin if he would do the music for it. If he had said no, I wouldn't have done it. And I probably wouldn't have made any musicals, you know, ever. I mean, that that was kind of the beginning of going down that road. So it all it all kind of hinged on him saying yes, but he was into the idea. And then it just kind of grew as we worked on it. I wound up taking a little bit of time off from school to sort of focus exclusively on it. And then even kind of post-graduation, we were still tinkering with it. Because you're class of what, 07? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, again, because I took some time off, I became class of 08, yeah. basically, but I was, I was class of 07 going in, as was Justin, mm-hmm. and we, and it actually, yeah, I mean, Justin wound up, I think Justin tried to have it count as his senior thesis as well, but the music department rejected it, mm-hmm. and then in my case, in my case, it was my thesis, but then because I took time off and didn't fully return, it just became an incomplete. Mm-hmm. So so basically, it, it became this thing that existed outside of the school environment, even though it was entirely kind of created within the school yeah. environment. Yeah. And, and, and I should say, I mean, the I mean, we really we were lucky that there were a few kind of people in the in the film department who really allowed us to, to have that kind of flexibility and yeah. use you know, because we didn't have any money of ourselves, so we were using the, the department's cameras. Mm-hmm. We were raising money to buy film stock and, and, and process the film stock, but, but that's pretty much all, I mean, that and, and a kind of 80-piece orchestra in Bratislava <laughs> were the only things that money went to. So, you know, out of that $60,000, all of them went to either stock processing or the music. Everything else was just people working for free. It was people within the department. It was friends of friends, tiny crew, 
you know, I was doing the camera myself. We just kind of went out on the streets. And you did the lyrics, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I think all of us were, yeah, I did the lyrics. All of us were wearing lots of, lots of hats, yeah. for sure. And at the end of this whole two-year process, what happened with the movie? I know it was very well-received by people who saw it at festivals, but did it get much of a release? No, well, I mean, it did actually, I mean, it got more than I ever would have thought it would get. I mean, it got, you know, we, we did a festival run for about a year, and then we did a little theatrical release, you know, in a few cities, and then home video. But what it didn't do, you know, so, so it got some nice reviews. Uh, it helped me, me find a manager, mm-hmm. but it did not really open any doors mm-hmm. in any real way within Hollywood. Mm-hmm. The only person that it kind of, I think the only person in Hollywood who watched it at all was was this guy Matthew Pluff who was at Focus Features at the time mm-hmm. and actually I mean I shouldn't even say Hollywood because he was in New York but he he reached out to me and that began a long relationship that eventually you know you know where I'd be sending him scripts and stuff that eventually led to him suggesting hey why don't you do another musical and eventually bringing in me and and Justin and a few producers to, to develop La La Land. And this was because Focus had this sort of developmental program, right, where they were guiding young... Well, that, and, and that was very much spearheaded by him. Yeah, it didn't last long, and actually he wound up leaving yeah. Focus, but it was this moment where, yeah, they were trying to find things that would theoretically be budgeted at around a million dollars. And so La La Land, ironically, was That's what developed your idea under, was, yeah. under those auspices. Well, I think when I, you know... Since I made Guy Manline for again, yes, yeah, like sixty thousand, I thought, oh, a million dollars—that's that's amazing. That's <laughs> that's you know, that's many many times Guy Manline. So we'll just you know, we'll have a hundred people on a freeway, and we'll have gravity-free dancing. <laughs> right. and it seemed all very doable to me. Until and it, it was so it was envisioned really as the next project, La La yeah. Land. Yeah. But pretty soon after Guy and Madeline, you and Justin moved to LA. Yeah, I mean, we were still, I was still editing Guy Madeline. He hadn't yet finished the score. So mm-hmm. we were still, I'd say, in the process of Guy Madeline when we moved to L.A. But shooting was done. Right. And then out in L.A. is where you had this this sort of focus features coordinated meeting with Fred Berger and Jordan Horowitz? Yeah, that would have been about three years later. And at that time, when you're thinking about La La Land, were you just thinking musical or was it always L.A. set musical? Well, at that point, it was L.A. set musical. Prior to that, I'd been, I mean, first, Matt Pluff just kind of suggested musical. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, to myself, and it was true that there were a lot of ideas that Justin and I had when we were making Guy Madeline that we just didn't, we weren't able to put into mm-hmm. that movie. So we did feel like there was more stuff to explore in the genre. So I just started writing musicals, you know, I mean, scripts. And the script precedes the music, or do you have the music first? In, in this case, I was just writing the script yeah. before any music and, and kind of slotting in where the numbers would be, sometimes even writing out dummy lyrics mm-hmm. that music could then be set to. And I wrote a couple of different ones. I mean, one of them was set in New Jersey. One of them was set in Boston. I mean, they were all completely different stories. Mm-hmm. You know, you could probably find a few similarities here and there in terms of the overall tone. But, yeah, and you know, the, the, and one was more of an ensemble thing. The other thing was more, you know, kind of about a married couple and lasted years. So these were all just kind of attempts to try to crack, you know, mm-hmm. something in the genre again, but they just weren't, you know, I mean, I'd send them to Matt, I remember, and he he wasn't <laughs> enthused about, as enthused as I was right. hoping about any of them, but he would kind of help guide me and, you know, sort right. of give me pointers. And I think at the, end of the day, at the end of the day, what I was doing was just kind of, you know, swinging, swinging at, you know, with the bat, trying to, trying to hit something, trying yeah. to kind of see what, what, what the angle would be. And eventually, again, years, you know, into that process, eventually, I think I was talking with Matt again, and we were talking about, you know, sort of settings for, for musicals. And I think he, he even sort of recommended to me that I try to, sort of think about, 
try to make it more personal, try to think about what I was actually going through at that time, you know, in Los Angeles and, and kind of as as a young artist in L.A. And that sort of opened a door. I mean, it was another kind of key moment of advice that kind of opened my eyes a bit. And so I started, yeah, working on then what became La La Land. I feel like some of the impassioned defenses of jazz that Ryan delivers in La La Land could easily have been you delivering them in real life. How much of you is <laughs> is in Sebastian? Uh, well, certainly, I mean, I guess, yeah, the, the, the passion for art of whatever kind yeah. is in both me and Sebastian. Otherwise, I mean, I'd say Sebastian is a little closer to who I was in college, <laughs> um, who I hope I'm, I'm not anymore. <laughs> you know, this kind of very rigid doctrinaire, kind of this is right, this is wrong, how dare you like this, uh, you know, such and such a thing kind of attitude, attitude to art, which, you know, maybe is helpful when you're young and you're trying to sort of figure out what your voice is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then hopefully you you mature a little bit and you realize, you know, why choose when you can have them all? Right. You realize that you don't have to, like, have some kind of huge battle, you know, lines drawn between Truffaut and Godard or between <laughs> Keaton and Chaplin or between right. jazz and blues. Right. I mean, it's it's kind of all... But yeah, so Sebastian, I, I kind of wrote him a little bit as a comic character, you right. know, someone who who someone who's lovable, you know, for sure, but but has this kind of demeanor that is not very helpful, and 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 you know, in many ways, his journey through the movie is is being disabused of some of those mm-hmm. biases a little bit. Now, your your script that became La La Land originally in, intended these two pro, these two characters to be a lot younger than even Ryan and Emma are. Isn't that, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if a lot younger, but but definitely sort of both solidly in their 20s. Okay. But I mean, they, they were basically, it was basically Ryan and Emma at the time that I wrote the script, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. 2010, early 2011, I think that's around when Crazy Stupid yeah. Love came out. And this idea of them being a couple was first introduced. And I'd loved them separately mm-hmm. before that. So I remember Fred Jordan and I all kind of talked about, wow, wouldn't it be wouldn't that be amazing if it was them? Never really thinking that would happen, <laughs> but we entertained the dream. And when you're talking with, with Fred and Jordan, for instance, they're as essentially advisors or they're saying we will be able to come up with financial backing? Because the reason I ask this is even musicals that people try to adapt from household name properties mm-hmm. are extremely hard to get made today. So the idea of of an original musical, which I can't even remember the the last one that was made on any real notable scale, you know, that's crazy. So for, as I'm sure you were told, so what were, were, (laughs) what were you, what was your sense when you're dealing with Fred and Jordan and trying to develop this material? Was it that we will help you get it to a place where, where you can present it or that we will get it made? They, well, I mean, the the amazing thing about Fred and Jordan was that, you know, they were initially brought on to do a, Focus Features movie, you know, it, it was it was Matt Pluff at Focus who kind of who ma- did the matchmaking mm-hmm. and sort of set me up with Fred and Jordan and then brought all of us in. So initially, Fred and Jordan weren't going to be responsible for, you know, raising money or something, you know, that they were just going to be uh, creative producers mm-hmm. and help me develop it and, you know, spearhead it all the way through shooting and to post and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then about a year in, Focus put the movie into turnaround. And so suddenly it was this orphaned project. And a lot of producers at that point, given the unlikelihood of the movie, would have mm-hmm. bailed. But Fred and Jordan didn't. In fact, they did the opposite. They just doubled down and they started pounding the pavement. And I went off and did Whiplash not that long after. But during that whole time, they were ceaselessly, tirelessly making calls, setting up meetings, pushing me to keep improving the script, to keep improving the demos. I mean, they were they were being 
full-on creative producers throughout that whole process. And by that time, Justin had already crafted a lot of the music or yeah i mean before we were dropped by focus justin had created demos for much of the music but in the years that followed we wound up changing mm-hmm. a lot of those demos you know or changing lyrics or or the project kept evolving yeah. I and mean, the the you know the, the spine of it the basic arc of it stayed the same yeah. from those earliest drafts but we spent you know every minute of the you know i guess free time we mm-hmm. had on this movie because it wasn't getting made anytime right, soon right, right. trying to improve it and in the meantime i guess you got to put food on the table. So you, you've said that you were working on a number of other things. You said, quote, before Whiplash, I, I'd had a string of failed scripts. I'd pour my blood, sweat, and tears into them, and no one would like them, close quote. And then Whiplash, I guess, again, it comes back to sort of write about what you know, right? When you'd been in this this intense jazz program in, in high school, you had had a teacher who was not unlike the J.K. Simmons character? Yeah, I think it was just like when Matt Pluff suggested to me, you know, I, I feel like something that's holding your writing back is, you know, you, you're, you're not pulling from your own experiences as much. It was kind of the same eureka moment with Whiplash. I had never considered that my experiences as a jazz drummer would ever be the stuff of a movie. It had never occurred to me. And then it sort of occurred to me all at once. You know, it kind of the, the movie came almost full-fledged in my head. And it was because I just thought, finally, oh, wait a minute, actually, this whole wealth of experiences and emotions that I'm sitting on that I never thought would be screen-worthy maybe they actually could be. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that sort of unlocked, then, yeah, writing Whiplash was actually pretty pretty quick. Yeah. Just incidentally, why did you call it Whiplash? Well, I didn't for a while. It was called The Drummer for, for several years. And then, then there was going to be another movie about the Beach Boys drummer called The Drummer that was going <laughs> to come out. So we couldn't call it that. But hadn't the song Whiplash also been a thorn in your ass for a long time? Yeah, but yeah. So I mean, the song Whiplash was always in that it had been, <laughs> and it was always in the script. It yeah. just didn't seem like I didn't like it as a title because it it seemed like the title of a like a straight to video like <laughs> horror movie or something. So I really I really resisted it, right. and then finally was kind of I think some of the people around me were wiser than me as as often is the case, <laughs> and I and I relented. So the script you write you write a feature script it. I believe goes on the blacklist in 2012, meaning it's one of the best unproduced scripts according to the industry. Mm-hmm. And yet it wasn't getting made. And so you felt, I guess, that the the most effective way of expediting the possibility of that happening was not to continue to push the script as a written document to people, but to do what instead? It was to do a short, basically to pull a scene from the script and make it as a little, you know, 15-minute short that could be a proof of concept. It wasn't my idea at first. It was, it was, it was these producers' idea, uh, initially Cooper Samuelson, who works with Jason Blum. He was someone who I'd met on the circuit pitching and trying to get writing jobs on, on some of those genre movies. You know, I remember, I think he and I first got close because we worked together very hard on a very elaborate pitch for Ouija, (laughs) which we were very proud of. And that went nowhere. (laughs) I I sort of delivered this 40-minute pitch, and the the feedback we got back was, yeah, that's too complicated. So, so I kind of you know went off in the shadows, licking my wounds. But right. but Cooper and I had developed a relationship. So when I wrote Whiplash, he was one of the first people I gave the script to. And so uh, you know everyone in in Hollywood passed on Whiplash, and Cooper initially passed as well. But for the obvious reasons in his case, because uh, well I'm you know with Jason Blum, we, we don't do this kind of movie. And then he called me back a few weeks later, going you know surprisingly going you know what I'm still thinking about that script you sent me, and it's not something that we really do here, but I think I know someone who might be into it. And so he sent it to Helen Estabrook, who was Jason Reitman's producer. Yes. And 
And then interest started to bubble up there. And I remember it was a very fateful day because the same day that, you know, at this point, La La Land had been at Focus for, you know, as I said, about a year. Mm -hmm. The same day that I was told Focus was putting La La Land into turnaround, that morning that I got that news, later that day, as I was about to board a plane at night, I got the call or the email that this group of producers was interested in helping me get Whiplash made, and that was Jason Blum's company and Jason Reitman's company. And they were interested in helping you get it made as a short? No, no, I mean, they were interested in helping me get it made as a feature, and that's what they tried to do initially, but they it just didn't work. I and mean, so you, you now go and do the short. You took 15 pages of, I guess, 120-page script. Turns out... 18 minutes. It was Cooper, I think, who who picked those 15 pages. Can you share, like, what's the what's the part that you chose to excerpt for the short? Yeah, he chose basically the, it's the kind of first set piece of the movie. It's the first kind of extended band rehearsal of the mm-hmm. movie. And so you introduce your two main characters and the world. It was a good kind of entree into the world because it was one location, but you got some scope to it because mm-hmm. you had the full band in there. You got some music, you got some drama. And yeah, so that that's we, we kind of decided, you know, because early on it, it didn't take long to realize that financing for the feature, even with these big shot producers, was just not going to be forthcoming. Right. So pretty early on, we we started going down this road of, of creating the the short. And was Reitman helpful in getting J.K. Simmons? Is that how that happened? Yeah, he was instrumental. I mean, he suggested J.K. and then helped put me in touch with him. I'm sure he's the reason J.K. agreed to you know do a short film for right, eight, right. for zero money with <laughs> no no, no too, promise though. of it becoming a feature. <laughs> yeah, in the long run. You didn't expect the short to get into Sundance. It did. At Sundance, it wins the the short prize in 2013. After that, did the feature become more more realistic as you know in terms of the response from other yeah. people? Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's not like. There was any sort of bidding war, <laughs> but we did, you know, Helen, Estabrook, and, and Cooper, they were able to create enough interest that we were able to lock down the financing for about $3 million mm-hmm. with a company called Bold Films. Now, I kind of remember, because I saw you around the time Whiplash came out, you were saying, I think, that at some point along the line, people had kind of leaned on you to maybe replace JK in the feature with one of three Kevins, Costner, Klein, or Spacey. And also uh, to consider Justin Bieber, among others, for the part of the drummer. Mm-hmm. So how did you withstand those ideas and, and end up with JK again and then with Miles? Well, you know, I, I was lucky that, again, kind of having good producers means you you get protected from some of the bullshit. <laughs> but yeah, I remember after the short being told in no uncertain terms, oh yeah, if you if you you know want any chance of making the movie for over $100,000, obviously you can't have JK in that role. I mean, you need, you need someone with more value. And I think what the producers did very smartly was that they just never let it be a choice. You know, in other words, when they went to the market, I guess, you know, with the, with the script, mm-hmm. at that point, the short, yeah. they also, you know, had JK as an attachment and it was kind of preset. Yeah. So it was, you know, if you were buying this movie, you were buying it with JK. Right. They didn't let it be a question that came up again. And then, yeah, I, I was really into the idea of Miles for the movie. I remember Spectacular Now had actually been at Sundance when I was there with the short. Mm-hmm. But also I'd seen him in Rabbit Hole, I think the year before that or yeah. a couple of years before that and was absolutely blown away. So yeah, I, I you know, we, th- in that case, we, you know, there we just sort of sent the script to his team with our fingers crossed, yeah. and luckily they responded. Just a year after the short was at Sundance, the feature was already ready to be there and won the audience and grand jury awards there. How did you turn it around so quickly? Just because it was always ready to go? 
I guess so, yeah, in the, in the sense that some of the stuff was kind of carried over from the short, including obviously JK, also Tom Cross, my editor. But I think it's also a little bit the reality of indie film making these days is that time equals money, mm-hmm. and that time just uh, time is more expensive than it's ever been. Yeah. So, you know, uh, an indie feature that would have, uh, you know, five or 10 years ago been shot, uh, you know, over 30 to 40 days was in this case a 19 day shoot mm-hmm. with a day or two for inserts. Mm-hmm. And an editing cycle that would have been, you know, many months was in this case, I mean, I think we had just under two months for everything in terms of picture cutting. So, it wound up, you know, we wound up being back at Sundance very quickly, but it wasn't necessarily because we were so adamant about being at Sundance right, right. within that cycle. Uh, it was it was also just that's all the time we could yeah, afford. Yeah. How much did the success of the feature, which just to note for the record, huge critical acclaim, did quite well at the box office, three Oscars. How much did that impact your life and your career in the, you know, immediately afterwards? Fletcher in the film says, quote, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. You got a lot of good job after that and you did okay. So what's what was that like? It was <laughs> the biggest change was getting to make La La Land, you know, mm-hmm. uh, honestly. And my producers, you know, at the uh, you know, at the, at, at the point that we went to Sundance, my La La Land producers, so Fred and Jordan, they were kind of waiting in the wings hoping because, you know, I mean, the, the other side of the story of me making Whiplash was, was them while I was doing it, again, trying to, desperately trying to get some money or some traction or anything for La La Land and with just no yeah. no success. And so by the time I went to Sundance, we had kind of, the, the well had run completely dry. I mean, we had tried everywhere, every mm-hmm. option. And so our, it was our Hail Mary. Let was, me just ask you though, I, want, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, yeah. what were you being told when you're going to people with La La Land? What was their... What were they saying to you? Well, they were mainly saying it to Fred and Jordan, so I, I was probably shielded from the more, <laughs> the more hurtful things, right. you know. But variations of no, you know, and and the, the reasons would be, I mean, a lot of the reasons were were kind of the obvious ones, you know, original musical. It requires a certain amount of resources to actually pull it off properly. Jazz, a love story where the lovers don't wind up together at the end. A lot of kind of old Hollywood sort of devices, and all of this kind of brought the, to the screen by a quartet of 20 or 30 somethings who had never done anything before mm-hmm. in Hollywood terms. So that was the, you know, glorious package right. that we were delivering <laughs> on people's doorsteps, you know, doorsteps. So I, I, I understand in retrospect right. why <laughs> they weren't racing to make it. So but, how did it finally on, on the terms that you were hoping for, which I guess ended up being $30 million budget, three months of rehearsal, which I know is very important to you to have that. And then also I think even more days than you'd initially wanted. It ended up being 42. I don't think you banked on that. Well, we, we, a lot of that stuff was more than we, we had hoped for. I mean, I think, I think by the time Whiplash came out at Sundance, mm-hmm. Fred and Jordan were sort of, you know, waiting by their phones, and their hope was that Whiplash would create enough of a stir at Sundance that they could reopen, you know, sort of conversations yes. about, about La La Land and eventually kind of get it into the market at, say, I think 15 million was sort of the the hoped for level. So that's essentially what wound up happening. You know, they wound up making a bunch of calls. As soon as I came back from Sundance, we started doing meetings, did lots of different types of meetings, you know, both with, you know, studio level and also with kind of equity, Mm -hmm. smaller equity. And what basically wound up happening was the studios all passed. The equity financiers who were interested just couldn't, you know, because they're based on Mm pre-sales and things like that. They have less flexibility than a studio. They can't just say, oh, yeah, we think it's this. We'll give you this amount of money. And they just weren't able to give us more than, say, I think 10 or 12 Mm -hmm. was the max that we could get from that sort of model. So a few months passed and, you know, it was was looking not great. (laughs) 
And then Lionsgate kind of stepped in in a big way and I think basically wanted to take it off the market and said, we're passionate about this. We want you to make the movie you want to make. We're going to support you and we're going to give you about a $20 million budget to make it. Why do you think they were more open to this than others? I ask myself that every day. I I, I don't know what kind of craziness uh, they had. I do remember they were the first people I, at Sundance actually, uh, because a couple of them were at Sundance, and they wound up being some of the biggest champions of the movie at Lionsgate. Eric Feig and Patrick Waxberger, two of the people who run it, they met me at Sundance the day after Whiplash, and they asked me, what else do you have? And I pitched them La La Land, never thinking that they would, you know, I expected them to go, "Uh uh-huh, okay, what else? And (laughs) instead, they seemed really into it and said, send us the script. And And, and they held to their word. Like, Waxburg is French, yeah. so that might have helped a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's he appreciated one, the one of the few people who could get the Jacques Demy yes. references. <laughs> it took a Frenchman to yes. uh, yeah. <laughs> How did Mark Platt come into this? Mark Platt, who's primarily known for his work on Broadway, where Wicked and yep. the, all kinds of things like that. How does he enter the picture as another producer? So we had just signed with Lionsgate, and at that point we were you know twenty million dollar budget with a different cast mm-hmm. actually at that point, and then a few months into that process. Well, I think, yeah, I think Lionsgate, I think we started meeting with some other producers. You know, we all sort of decided it would be nice to bring someone into the fold with a lot of experience Mm -hmm. and who would help us, help fight the fight, you know, for us. And when the going got tough, you know, to sort of have what we'd call the 800-pound gorilla uh, on our side. And and Mark Platt is a great (laughs) 800-pound gorilla, but he's also a brilliant creative mind. I remember the first time I met with him, he was immediately was talking to me about just things that I wouldn't expect a kind of big shot Hollywood producer, former studio head to talk to me about. He was immediately leading with the Umbrellas of Cherbourg and the French New Wave. And and we just spoke the same language immediately. And so he fit in very well. Did he also have something to do with how you ended up with your lyricist Pasek and Paul because I know he's working with them. That was actually coincidental. We had we had hired them already. We'd hired them about six months, I think, before he okay. was brought on. Yeah. Another do or die decision here for for the movie was casting these two mm-hmm. parts of the movie at the center of the movie. And how did you wind up with Ryan and Emma? I know there's been reports going back years about different other permutations of the cast. Can you just set the record straight on how we came so that, you know, season's over. Let's just, for the record, so that it doesn't get misreported in the future, how did we end up with Ryan and Emma? Well, I guess what happened was, you know, going back to when I was first writing the script, yeah. they were, they, they were you know, sort of these, these dream ideas in my head. Yeah. But eventually, a little after we got dropped from Focus, the script got in the hands of some people at WME who were, who were very interested in it. And so through, through a kind of various chains of someone knowing someone knowing someone. Mm-hmm. We wound up getting the script in the hands of Emma Watson, mm-hmm. who, who I liked very much as an actor. And so I met her and she sort of provisionally signed on to the movie for a couple of years. And that, you know, that actually helped us tremendously in sort of keeping the movie somewhat alive, yeah. even though we weren't financed at this point, right. but kind of maintaining some level of interest or making it seem somewhat, quote, real, right. <laughs> which you're always trying to do in right, Hollywood. Of course. Because <laughs> most movies are fake, basically. Right. <laughs> and then also, yeah, similarly, when it came to you know, like Ryan was someone I dreamed of. Uh, I, think, I think we, we made a pass at, uh, you know, uh, at him or, or at his team for the movie. It didn't work out. There wound up being lots of different discussions of lots of different people playing Sebastian. I mean, it's just uh, al- 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 almost anyone you can imagine was at some point approached. Yeah, Michael B. Um, I saw um, I heard. Yeah, yeah. And which was actually a nice 
the nice byproduct of that was I got to meet a lot of great yeah. young actors. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was actually a somewhat nice process in that sense. But eventually I was making Whiplash and having a wonderful time with Miles and so started talking to him about the movie. He read it after we had wrapped Whiplash and he came on board. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as so often happens, schedules got completely messed up. Initially Emma Watson actually wound up having to leave to do Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. which he'd wanted to do for a long time. And then after that, uh, you know, My- Miles stayed on board. And then after that, you know, I think now we're getting to the place where we're probably into the almost a year now after. Yeah, because n- n- now we're into award season with Whiplash. So it's almost a year after Sundance. Yeah, I remember um, ta- at the and, New York Film Festival sitting with you. And it, at that point, I think you, you were saying, yeah, I was like, what's next for you? And I think it was still going to be So it was probably Miles, Miles but probably not Emma uh, right. anymore, right? So it was probably uh, Miles, and we were trying to fill the role of Mia. And it's a little bit like whack-a-mole. It's like, you know, you'd, you'd kind of fill one role, and then, yeah, and then yeah, that would course. fall apart and fill another. And, right. and so a somewhat similar thing wound up, wound up happening with Miles, where, where scheduling, especially when it came time to rehearsal scheduling, just wasn't working out. And so we wound up going our separate ways. And actually, I remember at the moment that it was no longer Miles, we I don't think we even technically had Emma stone in hand. I'd been I'd been kind of courting her mm-hmm. for a while for mm-hmm. the role. And certainly Ryan was was not even in the discussion. And I initially I forget before or after whatever it was, I initially met Ryan. The first time I met Ryan was not to talk about La La Land at all because again it you know that wasn't in the conversation. Right. It was to talk about this Neil Armstrong movie. Yes. Which <laughs> so, is now going to which happen. is now going yes. Yeah. <laughs> so him. Yeah. but I remember at that meeting we talked about musicals just kind of as an off off topic. And so once we realized we, you know, once we basically had zero people in the movie, and the movie at this point was dead. I mean, right. we, I should note, we had had a green light from Lionsgate for a moment with Miles and Emma Watson, you know. So we had been a greenlit movie yeah. going into prep yeah. when the stuff all started to fall apart. So we were a completely dead movie. I must and have thought you were cursed with this movie. I, I literally did. Yeah. This, was, this was the thing where I was like, wow, actually maybe maybe we're just not supposed to yeah, make this movie yeah. ever. And then, yeah, it was it was like luck, you know, this kind of incredible convergence of things, you know, that, that suddenly I heard through the grapevine that, oh, you know, actually Ryan, who I knew at that point to be a musical fan, might be, yeah. might be interested or re-interested. It looked like Emma Stone was not going to be able to do it because of scheduling on another movie mm-hmm. she was doing about all the sexes. But then it looked suddenly like that might push. Yeah. There might be a possibility. And so we just tried to hit the ground running. And yeah. Mark was very helpful with this as well because he knows both of them. Yeah. And he was a producer uh, on the movie at this point. And then we were able to you know, sort of <laughs> reapproach both of them, sign them on together. They both signed on within a few hours of each other. Knowing and that they then, would be doing yep. it with each other, yeah. And then, and then we were right into prep. What's kind of amazing to me, though, is that when you first envisioned them, you're saying like back in 2011, what reason did you have to believe that either of them had any musical ability whatsoever? I didn't care because I wanted actors in the movie, not musicians. I'd gone the opposite route with Guy Madeline, ironically. There it was musicians who had never acted, playing yeah. kind of versions of themselves. But here I really liked the idea of to achieve the same end, which is blending realism with, with the musical. It's the same kind of goal I had with Guy Madeline. Here it was just about approaching that from a different angle and trying to really create an emotional world that felt realistic and true with these two people yeah. where you don't necessarily expect them to break in a song. You haven't seen them break in a song before. Right. You don't really know they have that in them the same way I don't know that you, know, you or I have yeah. that <laughs> in us. But then suddenly emotions get big enough that, oh, a musical number arises. And it makes yeah. it feel accessible. It makes it feel like it could happen to anyone as opposed to people who are where you're just kind of waiting for the you know the song to begin and the things that made that doable for that to happen where they just break into song or whatever was this extremely unusual three-month prep period right a rehearsal period that just just for listeners who may not know how often does that happen on a movie three months 
Not very often. Not very often. And it was huge that we got. I mean, I, a lot of credit is owed to to Ryan and Emma for helping demand that, like mm-hmm. helping kind of fight our fight with mm-hmm. us for that. This is also the period where the budget sort of crept up from from 20 to about 30. Mm-hmm. And Mark as well was was very helpful in sort of making sure to protect this kind of rehearsal period mm-hmm. that we knew would be key. And it's funny, though, you say three months or so, and it sounds like a lot of time. But when you're actually in it, <laughs> it, it never feels like enough time. Because I remember it feeling like a what you had to do in that dash. time was they had to learn how to sing, to dance, to play piano, play piano in Ryan's, in Ryan's case, case yeah. yeah. Also, you were content. The thing that they've really marveled at is that you were open enough to continue to tailor the script to things that they were sharing about their own experience during Mm -hmm. that time. So like, for instance, Ryan and his own experience had a horrible audition (laughs) and that became Emma's horrible Mm -hmm. audition and things like that. So also, was this simultaneously when you were finding and then working with the choreographer, Mm -hmm. Manny Moore, to put together that, that huge opening number? Luckily, Mandy had been on for quite a while at that point. Actually, a bunch of because we had been greenlit at a moment and then fell apart. The silver lining of that was that a lot of our team was in place yeah. already. We had already done scouting for the first version of the movie wow. with the Wascos, yeah. and we had already I'd already done a lot of work on choreography with Mandy. And as I said, Pasek and Paul had already put yes. words to all the songs. So we just kind of picked up where we left off. And yeah, Mandy. I mean, the amazing thing about Mandy also was that she was not only choreographing, she was also spearheading the instruction mm-hmm. of Ryan and Emma, which for this movie actually became kind of one and the same because yeah. we really wanted the choreography to be informed by them and their movements yes. and kind of their little idiosyncrasies and they both have these kind of weird ways of moving mm-hmm. that are wonderful that you want to kind of tailor the dance to mm-hmm. and Mandy's great at that but yeah all of us I think had to be juggling a lot of different elements and I think one of the things that probably made her job and Ryan and Emma's slightly more challenging but that is really a testament to you and your familiarity with and and enthusiasm for the great golden age musicals is that unlike almost anything today but very much the way they did it then you show the dancers full body and without cutting away so that there's never any question that you're actually seeing these people do what they appear to be doing and the number that you guys have a lovely night up over overlooking the the city, the way that is done just struck me as so much like in, in the best way, dancing in the dark in, in the bandwagon. I know you had other references as well. What were the what were the ones you were thinking about? Well, I mean, a big one for that song was Isn't It a Lovely Day to Be Caught in the Rain mm-hmm. between Fred and Ginger and Top Hat. Mm-hmm. I also, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off mm-hmm. and Shall We Dance. You know, so the thing with that number, I guess it's kind of a, you know, microcosm for the whole approach to the movie because it kind of, we sort of let it get more ambitious or more challenging as it evolved. You know, I think at first, when I first envisioned the number, it was going to be just kind of regular nighttime and about four or five shots. I'd sort of kind of figured out where the cut lines would be. So still long takes, but, you know, four or five of them. Right. And then as we sort of developed the number more, and Lena Sangren, the DP, came on, who who loves to egg me on with challenges <laughs> and, uh, and you know, uh, one-up me. It grew into a single-take mm-hmm. number. I remember at first, people, you know, some of the other people on the project kind of raising their eyebrow at that, <laughs> going, like, you don't really, you don't mean, like, the, the whole conversation and then all the way till they find the car, that's all of that's going to be? <laughs> and we're like, yeah. And then, you know, this was some part of the way into prep. And again, I think I can credit Linus with this lunacy. The idea of shooting it all at, at, at real magic hour kind of came up. Which meant you, know, you uh, had to nail it. Which meant we had a half hour, yeah. basically, oh. within which to do a six-minute shot. So, 
But what was fun about you know that and about the whole process was that it, it, it was never just about trying to set technical challenges to then fulfill. It was always about trying to make these moments feel like events and trying to kind of make the everyday feel epic. Sure. That was sort of everything we were trying to do with the movie was take real locations but make them look almost larger than life and take, you know, kind of everyday emotions, even small moments like holding hands in a movie theater mm-hmm. or a little, you know, flirtation mm-hmm. between, you know, with someone you've just met and make them feel like just magic big screen movie stuff. Did you ever really doubt that that could work in the present day? Because the reason that we're often given for why musicals went away is that society's just become more cynical. Right. People aren't willing to roll with the fantasy that they demand. And yet you've proven that wrong. So in your mind, was there ever a time when you thought this actually might just completely not resonate? Oh, for, I mean, every night I have. <laughs> You know, it was very much a projection of confidence. I was not exactly feeling confident <laughs> inside at any given moment. I think what I would always fall back on when in doubt was, well, this is the movie I want to see. Mm-hmm. And that's all I can really know. And that's all that really should matter because I can't second guess what anyone else is going to want to see. I just have to make what I want to see, be true to that, and then hope that I'm not alone <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and so that was kind of the philosophy it was just trying to be completely true to my own gut, my own instinct. You know, same goes with Justin. You know, we were just trying to preserve that and not trying to kind of uh, cater to something else. And the first sort of indications of whether or not it was going to break your way were, I guess, test screenings. I know maybe you did some probably with, with friends and family or whatever, but now you put it out to strangers. And I believe because of those, the way those played, you you slightly tinkered, particularly with the beginning. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the test screens was that it was, it was actually this incredibly helpful process. But they're helpful not for, not for like, the numbers that you get back. I mean, we, 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 if I was just solely relying on the numbers, I probably would have just gone and, you know, quit or something because we were not <laughs> testing well. What's helpful is to sit there with a group of strangers and watch them watch the movie. And, and I did that not just in kind of official test screening capacity, but almost on a weekly basis mm-hmm. with little groups mm-hmm. of friends and family, sometimes three people, sometimes 20, sometimes in the case of the full test screenings, 500, mm-hmm. you know. And, and you learn different things from each kind of circumstance. And it's the only, at a certain point when you've been editing a movie for so long, it's almost the only way you can watch it because Mm -hmm. you, just watching it alone, you can't really see it anymore. You have to see it through other people's eyes and then you realize, oh, that's slow, that's fast. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we certainly kind of, I mean, there was a whole rejiggering with the opening, basically the first act of the movie with the opening traffic number and an opening credits overture that used to precede it and various other things around it that wound up getting either eliminated or shuffled. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we we learned a lot, but, man, it's that's that's some of the most stressful stuff, you know, some of the most stressful parts of the process. And when did you first become accepting of the fact that it that it was working? Because I, I wasn't there at Venice where it had its world premiere, but I was there at Telluride where it had its North American, and I had seen it in L.A., so I kind of stayed in the back, mm-hmm. and I happened to see that after you did your intro, you hung around the back pacing a little bit even in Telluride. So it seems like you were not— Certainly not cocky about it at that point. Not that you've been cocky since, but I mean, just (laughs) that, you know, there were still some doubts in your mind. I mean, there's always doubts. I mean, there's (laughs) doubts in my mind now. There'll always be doubts in my mind. It's, it's, I've learned to just accept that about myself, even though it's really annoying. <laughs> so so that kind of never goes away. I certainly was a nervous wreck before Venice. Mm-hmm. I've never felt more nervous about showing anything I've done. And 
Yeah, but I think I think Venice was maybe because Venice was the first test, really, real test of the finished movie. You know, I think I'd gone the movie to a place where I was happy with mm-hmm. it. You know, certainly I remember being very, very happy with it when we were putting the fin- the final touches on it in the mix and in the color correction. And I also was so elated that I'd gotten to make the movie at all, mm-hmm. and that I'd gotten to make it with zero creative compromises. Mm-hmm. You know, which meant that if everyone hated it, well, at least you know that that was my fault. Right. It wasn't. You know that I'd let it become that. You know that it had been the movie had been co-opted right, right, by. Right. It, you know, if the movie failed, those were my failings, and that's actually a nice yeah, feeling. Yeah, yeah. You know, and in, the in extent though that to which it has done the opposite of fail. Let's just note again for for listeners: massive rave since Venice and Telluride, all the way through the festival season. Big phenomenon at the box office as well, which is not at all a given for a musical. Very, very rare. And then you woke up about a month ago and found out that your movie, your little movie, had been nominated for as many Oscars as any movie in history. And so as a as a winding this down, I guess, why do you think, setting aside humility, what is it about this movie in this moment that has enabled it to resonate as much as it has and on a personal level now, looking ahead a week from today, I've kind of brought up the name Norman Torog with you a little bit as as a guy who for the last 80, you're, you're one of the few people who has any idea who, who this guy is. But 85 years ago, he was 32 years old and several days into his 33rd year, I guess. You are now 32 years old and fewer days into your 33rd year, meaning that as this whole La La Land phase of your life comes to a close, there's this extra cherry on the on the cake that you may well become the youngest person ever to to win the best director Oscar. So I guess just looking back as a, as a guy who if you can somehow step outside of yourself for a moment, mm-hmm. why did the movie work and what do you make of of this particular moment for yourself? Ooh. <laughs> well, you know, I I think the thing that if there's one sort of takeaway or, or, or one thing that I guess I've always felt a little bit is that, you know, people want something that's different than than everything else that's, you know, out there. And the thing that made this movie hard to finance, the thing that gave us all doubt, I think is the same thing that, you know, ultimately sort of helped it succeed. It's just that there wasn't really anything analogous to it on movie screens right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I, you know, desperately wanted to make it. That's why I, I had this burning desire to make it because it, it was in my head, you know, and I could I could envision it on a movie screen, but I knew it would be this whole uphill battle to actually, you know, get that image in my head onto an actual movie screen. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the journey. But we held on to that idea that, you know, that if we did it the way we wanted to do it, if we pulled it off, it would be it would be something fresh and different and and risky and new. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's in terms of everything else, it's kind of it's still sort of impossible in a way to take too much of a step back because, uh, you know, we're still sort of in it and mm-hmm. I'm and I'm still kind of in a daze about all of it. <laughs> I'm also just, you know, no matter what happens with awards or whatnot, it's it's also just so kind of heartening to be sort of in the conversation with the movies this year because it's really been, I think, a tremendous year for, for movies. And just the filmmakers I've gotten to meet on the circuit and the films I've gotten to see, that's actually kind of the best the best yeah. thing about it is you, you sort of, you kind of dream of, of being accepted by a community that you want to be a part of or being among peers who you respect and admire. And that's that's what I think maybe the biggest takeaway of, of you know, what you call award season right, right. would be. Yeah. And since I won't see you probably before the Oscars, I just want to say it's been it's been a lot of fun getting to cover you and your whole group, which, Thanks. you know, you couldn't have a nice group from Olivia and Justin through 
the whole group. And, you know, it makes it a lot nicer when it's somebody that you want to root for. So I just congratulate <laughs> you, you and, and hope you enjoy it on Sunday. A week from today, it's coming up. I, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> I will try to enjoy. All right. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you so much, Appreciate man. It.